Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to another edition of the Spectacle Podcast. I'm your co-host, I guess, Scott McKay. I'm a contributing editor at the American Spectator. I'm also the publisher of Reviver.com and TheHayRide.com and the author of a forthcoming book called Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, which is all about how Barack Obama will not give up control of your life. With me is Melissa McKenzie, the publisher of The American Spectator, and we have a special guest today, Liz Merle, who is the Solicitor General of the state of Louisiana, running for Attorney General of the state of Louisiana. Liz, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. It's Labor Day. Happy Labor Day for all who labor. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we decided we were going to bring Liz on, and because of her busy campaign schedule, actually cannibalizing some of Labor Day for all of us was probably the best uh, way to go. But we're super excited about it because uh, Liz, you're going to be a really interesting guest to talk to because what we're going to talk uh, about this time is the federal government and its abuse of the First Amendment. You're involved in actually, uh, well, multiple lawsuits against the Biden administration on this very topic, the most prominent one being uh, uh, Missouri v. Biden, right? Which is right. Uh, uh, a, kind of a landmark case about how the federal government essentially can or, or co-opted big tech to censor the American people over the 2020 election and uh, COVID and other things along those lines. So um, how's that case going? And you know, what are your thoughts so far about how things are um, uh, progressing with the Biden administration and their uh, respect or lack thereof for the First Amendment? Yeah, I don't see a whole lot of respect for the First Amendment, but um, I can tell you where the case is right now, we're waiting for the Fifth Circuit to rule on the injunction that was issued by Judge Doty that said, stop colluding with big tech and, you know, stop, you know, censoring people's speech about the election and about COVID. The, the COVID censorship has, you know, kind of waned a little bit. I, I think that the election censorship was likely to be ratcheting back up again because we're about to go into another presidential election year and we can already see um, a lot of people getting pretty, pretty engaged in that. So, you know, the, the federal government needs to stop controlling big tech platforms so that they can control the outcome of our elections. Um, how do you think it affects things that Elon Musk is now in charge of, of you know, Twitter, now X, and, and there isn't a monopoly of uh, sort of government control and censorship uh, over the First Amendment? Does that whole thing kind of melt away now because these other guys have to compete with Twitter or X, or do you think it ratchets up even more? I don't know if it melts away. I mean, it was, it's such a sprawling enterprise that the government had created and is unapologetically defending, you know I mean? They don't step up at the podium and say, we didn't do it. They step up and say, we need to do it. And speech is bad. You know, that's pretty scary. Um, I do think that Elon Musk's uh, uh, taking over Twitter has made, or at now X, has made a huge difference because he actually shows some respect for the First Amendment. He does seem to really care and see the connection between the First Amendment and the, the you know, kind of continuing viability of a democracy. So I think that's really important and and it and it is a game changer. I have a question for you, Liz. As far as the uh, case goes, you say that the government is really defending itself and actually saying we have to do this. And there is definitely a line, you know, if somebody is a terrorist uh, or a criminal, you know, running a criminal enterprise, where is the balance between for that and and what do what case do you think that the government has do you think they have a chance of because i suspect this will they'll this will go to the supreme court i don't know what you think about that and and um you know what chance do they have of winning well i mean it's fair it is a challenge to write an injunction which judge doty i think did a, a very very good job of navigating those 
challenges. But if you think about having to write a ruling that tells the federal government to stop violating the Constitution when the evidence showed that it was across multiple agencies, through the FBI, through CISA, through HHS, through the White House, now you're having to write an opinion that captures all of this unconstitutional conduct. It's hard to do that. But I think the guiding principle is always the First Amendment, and it's what the Supreme Court has already said about what's protected speech and what's not protected speech. And and most speech is protected. You can't yell fire in a in a crowded theater. You can't engage in a criminal enterprise and think that that's protected speech. But the government can't label all of us as bad actors or hateful people and then censor our speech because it doesn't like what we're saying. And that's where they had crossed the line. The government didn't like what we were saying. And, and, and you know, some of the examples of that are like the Hunter Biden laptop. Mm-hmm. We know that to be true. Um, COVID, some of the things about COVID, and let's talk about myocarditis. My son had it. He was in the hospital. Um, they were throttling uh, so that you couldn't share videos where people talked about true things for example, my son's myocarditis, because they didn't want it to create vaccine hesitancy. So think about that. It was the truth. They didn't like the truth. So they stopped, they they threatened the tech platforms if they didn't take down truthful commentary by people. That's what's so frightening. And I think that the first there are there is guidance about what's protected speech and what's not protected speech. And they just need to stay on the right side, the right side of that line. Liz, you mentioned um, uh, your son's myocarditis. Can we tell that story? Because I, I think it's actually something that that uh, the folks would be interested in. And I, I think here in Louisiana, some people know about it, but um, it's kind of a classic case of, um, you know, the vaccine hesitancy, especially where kids are concerned, is a real thing. It's a rational thing. And the, the way that it has been presented is just, you know, dangerous and and terrible, obviously. But uh, let me let me open it up and let you tell that speech because I think people would find a lot uh, a lot there. Right. So the vaccine came out and or the shot and and it came out and they eventually you know originally they said there'll be no mandates and then there were mandates and then they said we're not going to force it on kids and then they were forcing it on kids. Well, my son was going to be a counselor at a summer camp. And the camp said you can't leave count that you can't leave the the premises if you're not vaccinated. Um, so a lot of the kid the counselors were going to be vaccinated so they could go to the movies and things like that while they were um, on their off nights. And he had the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine, and within 24 hours he was having chest pain. By that time he was in Texas, and I I had to go get him because he wasn't being treated properly. And I drove him home basically in the middle of the night, got him back to his pediatrician. And by the end of the day, he was in the hospital, um, diagnosed with pericarditis and myocarditis. It was triggered by the vaccine. And he was in the, he was in ICU and pediatric ICU for a week. And so I started calling, actually they called me, the governor's office called me uh, the LDH called me, Dr. Cantor, who was, you know, then the um, epidemiologist advising the governor that he called me. And they all this was at a time when the research was just coming out about myocarditis and pericarditis with young adult males. And what shocked me was that after this happened and after multiple people started reporting, doctors are reporting LDH was telling doctors, sending out a notice saying, watch out for this. And then, but at the same time, they were putting a video out on their website that said myocarditis is mild and that nobody has suffered any serious consequences and that all these kids should still get vaccinated. And they weren't doing anything to monitor it. They monitored you if you had COVID. They did not monitor you if you had the vaccine. And so you know, they're pushing all these kids out in the, right at the beginning of summer. 
right before they're getting ready to go to two a days and go back to school. And, and they're saying you have to be vaccinated if you want to compete, but they won't even do a simple blood test on them to track, to see if they're having any consequences. You know, the whole thing was just a disaster. And, and just to kind of tie it back into the speech, we now have evidence from the white house and LDH and Dr. Fauci showing that they were flagging this kind of speech. So for example, I testified in the legislature, I wrote a letter to the governor, I put that out on Facebook. Um, I did a lot of things. Now, I don't know whether they were taking down my speech. I do know that they were taking down um, the Health Defense Fund and some other people who they um, who they had flagged as dangerous speakers because they were having an impact and they were causing vaccine hesitancy. And so, you know, Tucker Carlson was one of them. Jill Hines was one of them. Um, you know, so they were they were throttling. And, and when I say throttle, I mean, slowing down the speech so that it wouldn't be you couldn't spread it. And so that's the, but the things that I was saying were exactly the kind of things that they didn't want anybody to hear. So we knew that it was true. We knew that it was dangerous, that dangerous in the sense that myocarditis is dangerous. It's not mild. Cardiologists don't use those terms together, but they didn't want anybody to talk about it because it might actually cause people to not have the shot, which you know, it was exactly what we should have had was more speech, more discussion, more science, more examination, and and not having the government make a policy decision that it wanted to stop that kind of speech for its political purposes. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that's maddening about this is that COVID has a lower mortality rate for people under about age 25 than the flu. The flu is actually more um, troubling. And so they're giving, they're forcing a vaccine that has side effects that are potentially worse. Not potentially, because now they know that the actual, in the, the, the statistics for young adult males are actually higher. So it is, I mean, the, 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 the threat of myocarditis and pericarditis for a young adult male is much higher than they had originally thought. Mm -hmm. And the the likelihood that a young adult male, especially or a young adult is going to get COVID and have serious consequences lower than that of the chances of you getting myocarditis, pericarditis. But the other thing is that you're just, the, the idea that we can't talk about it. Right. I mean, I testified in Congress and half the panel, all the Democrats on the, the congressional panel on the weaponization of government, we were there to talk about churches and violations of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. They were basically, you know, chastising us for testifying right. about the truth and saying that it was dangerous for us to be talking about these things and about violations of the Constitution because people got sick. And I'm like, I, I don't even get that. It is dangerous to not talk about violating the Constitution. It's not it's far more dangerous to threaten people for talking for for exercising their rights and their their free speech rights. And then for the Congress, for members of Congress to chastise people for speaking the truth. That's shocking to me. Well, it was dangerous for them politically. I mean, let's their their whole shtick and continues to be amazingly uh, hanging their political fortunes around policy, you know, policies regarding COVID. And but so, the First Amendment has always been dangerous. I mean, dangerous to politicians, right? right? I mean, right. that's the whole point of it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's why we are guaranteed we we retained that guarantee in the Constitution and said. You know, we will always retain the right to speak freely, to exercise our, you know, to, for the free exercise of religion. I mean, these are rights that we retained when the Constitution was established and approved. It's always been the dangerous politicians. Yeah. You know, this this kind of ties into um, and I, I know I'm taking this a little bit far afield. And Liz, I don't want to get you in trouble, but 
um, this has been something with not just the Biden administration, but the, I guess, you know, if you want to call it the deep state or whatever, I mean, it ties all the way into January 6th and all of these people that have been put in prison for essentially, I mean, you want to talk about the First Amendment. I mean, most of these people didn't beat up a cop. They were there to exercise their First Amendment right to petition the government for a redress of grievances, which is right there in the First Amendment. Um, and yet they're being prosecuted and sent to jail. Uh, you know, at the same time, you've got a government that that essentially puts out a lie with 51 intelligence uh, operatives saying that, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop was a Russian dis disinformation ploy when it was not um, throttling true information about covid. Um, and I mean, we could actually go pretty far afield. Um have gone so after what, abortion protesters two years after the fact. I mean, absolutely. You know, this is they they you know I've no one I've never seen a weaponization of the government like this. Now you know the McCarthy era was was historically I think pretty bad in terms of First Amendment rights and um and and the same type of things were happening, but this seems to me to be far more, re you know, it's, it just reaches further and it's carried out into a lot more areas of speech. Um, but you, you know, you can see how much power the government has to go after individuals and, and put them through hell and back. You know right. I mean? They're not going to, a lot of these people are in prison. They will not get uh, their rights restored until they until potentially they get relief in the United States Supreme Court, probably. So, you know, just, you're going to have to have somebody who's actually not biased and part of that cartel to be able to look at the record and sort it out and and really come back and say this was protected speech. This wasn't. Well, and how much does it cost a lot. To, to appeal a criminal case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean. You know, but for whatever help somebody on the outside might give these people, nobody can. No, regular people can't afford a case uh, to to push, to push a case like that all the way up, even if they can get it there. Um, Do you remember so, the billboards that were in Baton Rouge at the time that you could walk drive down Stanford Avenue and see a big billboard that basically said, "Rat out your friends to the FBI if they were in Washington D.C. on January 6th." I mean. It was a witch hunt and and it's still going on. And I, I think it is to scare people in. And it has. I mean, you know, it is. It's expensive. They've come after a lot of people um, who really were there just to protest. Um, I, you know, I, this this is and at the end of the day, it undermines confidence in our institutions, in the justice system. And I, I really think that is the point of a lot of this. It's not just to go after these people and for the retribution part of it, which I think they enjoy, but I think it's also to undermine confidence in institutions that they don't really believe in. They weaponized them because they don't respect them. They don't believe in them. And so they are just using them for their own political purposes. That is a terribly threatening thing for the Republic. How much of this do you think has metastasized from say the Obama administration? Um, and specifically what I'm talking about is, is the weaponization of the IRS to go after a lot of these Tea Party groups that were really making a lot of political headway. And then all of a sudden you get to the 2012 election cycle and none of them are really um, even in the game anymore because of you know, the fact that they're all gummed up with with investigations from DOJ and IRS. I think it started then. Uh, I think the seeds were, were, were you know, planted then. Um, the election of Donald Trump to, took, you know, a lot of those people out for four years where they could plan what they were going to do when they took the White House back. And, and you can see a lot of memos that were put out. Um, you can look at that on the energy sector. It wasn't a secret what they wanted to do to the energy sector. They put mem memos out saying, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. 
uh, and they have very systematically followed that plan. So I do think the seeds were were planted then, but but once they got the rains back, they wasted no time. Um, and I believe that that the attitude, as I perceive it, has been to implement these radical, radical policies across the government. And if you look at the Biden, at, at Biden's executive orders, you can see all these executive orders that say we're taking an across the government approach to all of these policies. And so they're trying to to basically embed a lot of really radical policy into the system and make it very, very hard to weed out. Right. And you mentioned that with uh, Judge Doty's um, injunction ruling in the Missouri v. Biden case, this this across government uh, approach means that you have to, to, to do something about it. You practically have to sue every single federal agency in order to put a stop to it. Right. Right. Well, and then that makes it very difficult for a judge because the judge looks at the case and and, you know, conservative judges especially are philosophically they philosophically believe that it, in separation of powers, right? I, I don't think that liberal judges necessarily do. They, they're activist judges, so they're going to do whatever they want. But a conservative judge is someone who is usually pretty well grounded in their principles in the Constitution and separation of powers. So they're going to look at that and say, I can't write an injunction and I can't supervise. I'm just a judge. I can't supervise the entire federal government. Mm -hmm. And so then they're cautious about how they write their opinions and what they do. Judge Doty, I thought, did a very good job of navigating what the government can do and what the government can't do and using old other Supreme Court opinions to be able to write his opinion to say this is what the court has said is OK and this is what the court hasn't said has said is not OK. And this is where you violated that line. Um but it is hard to stop it. I mean, they've put us in a position where you're like putting your finger in a dike that's spouting holes every, you know, second. And and there's just it's not a, there's not enough people to stop it. If you read the Fed, you know, I'm one of the weird people who reads the Federal Register. And, you know, when you see this whole of government approach, that's where it comes out of. It comes out of the administrative state, which, you know, if they actually publish a rule, then you're going to see it come out of the Federal Register. But a lot of times they're just doing things at a policy level. They're not even publishing it as a rule. So, you know, it uh, it's very bad. I mean, I think there it, there might be some hope on the horizon with a Supreme Court case that's pending that could take down Chevron deference or narrow Chevron deference. And for people who don't know what Chevron deference is, it's a policy that gives a lot of deference to the administrators on their interpretation and application of laws written by Congress. So right. if they narrow that amount of deference and say, you know, we're not going to give you as much deference on changing policy, especially when it has these dramatic fiscal and social consequences and economic consequences, we won't give you that deference. That could take down a lot of policy. Yeah. Well, at that point, you've got to actually pass a law through Congress, which almost nothing that the Biden administration is doing could get through Congress, right? Whether right. it's the Green New Deal stuff or, or, you know, a lot of this other stuff. Um, you know, right. I mean, the, 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 uh, certainly the Republicans in the House won't go for it. And I think you probably could filibuster pretty much everything with Republicans in the Senate. So it's all administrative state. Nobody elects them. You've got a, a deep state that is radicalized and weaponized. And most, I mean, you know, you mentioned the lack of confidence in, in the institutions. I mean, I'm running across very few people, even, even on the left, uh, who have the level of confidence in the federal government being a benign influence in their lives um you know like now that might be a good before. thing you know i mean it's yeah. i mean i think if you see people on the left and the right beginning to see the federal government as dangerously large it and it is you know, I mean, and because it starts to threaten local governance at this. And I, when I say local, I mean state 
and local municipal governments, school boards, you know, when you have the federal government. So let's take one example. Just recently, the Department of Education, which you could get rid of the Federal Department of Education, and I don't think we would miss it at all. Um, but they have been threatening school funding if you have an archery program. So they're misinterpreting some congressional language and they are threatening school funds if you have a school archery program. Well, that's absurd. You know, I mean, but this is the kind of thing that they can come in and they can really dramatically affect everything at the local level when they threaten your federal funding. And they've done it with gender policy. They've done it now with, with archery programs. I mean, you begin to not have local governance anymore when the federal government exercises that kind of control over everything that we do. And that's what they've been doing. They've been exercising it through every single agency of the federal government. So if both sides are starting to react to that and say, mm, don't really like that, they don't like it if Donald Trump's president, we don't like it when Joe Biden's president, maybe, maybe it will narrow the scope and the impact of the Fed. I mean, I'm, I'm being, I think, unreasonably optimistic that people would actually shut down some of the power of the federal government because all I ever see is it getting bigger. But Listen, I do think that that would be a good trend. I have a question for you because in in the in the speech case, one thing that struck me is how the federal government uh, weaponized um, colleges gave funding to various professors who were doing, you know, research and basically it was doing the government's dirty work and then also using NGOs who were outside of, um, who were technically not the government and giving them the funding to do the things they knew they couldn't do to interfere with and deal with tech companies. Yeah. And we're seeing this kind of um, devilry all throughout the government, not just in speech. Climate, energy policy, mm -hmm. and uh, gender policy. I mean, all of it. It's the same. ESG, you know, using, using non-government um, organizations to put pressure on and create standards that are absurd that then, you know, corporations are trying to... Um, um, and gladly jumping to do, by the way, because it absolutely brutalizes their small competitors, right. um, fulfilling all of these various rules and regulations and trying to keep up with that. Is there any way legally to deal with this kind of thing? Is there, because it's so pernicious and it's not technically, it's government funds, it's taxpayer funds often being used. Um, yeah. So... Well, there's two, there's two categories. There's old money. There's money that was given to us through other through through pre-existing grant programs, and then there's new money. and And the legal position we have is different. So, if it's new money, then the, then they can establish standards consistent with whatever Congress established for that grant program. Their part of the problem is whether Congress actually did put the limits um, on it, the funding in the manner that the, the administration is placing limits or, or showing preferences. On old money, it's a bigger threat. It's a different threat. And, you know, one of the things I was going to tell you is that if you look back at what happened with Common Core, same, mm -hmm. same thing. Yeah. So they come up with this idea that you're going to have common these new standards and they use a new grant program, the race to the top to establish it. And it was really relatively small amounts of money. But then they started to weave those same standards in to old money, old grant programs and not just grant programs, but money that is distributed to implement acts of Congress like IDEA or the ADA. So these mm -hmm. are laws that we are obligated to comply with and there right. might be federal money associated with our compliance but we don't have a choice we have to comply and then they start weaving these new standards so they acclimate people to them first and mm -hmm. then they start weaving them into the old programs and then they start threatening your old program money 
you know, so it is very, very pernicious. It really is. And so how do we stop it? Well, we can file lawsuits. I mean, at the end of the day, we are relying on a federal judge to 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 issue an order that says they can't do this. They have exceeded their power. They've overreached. They've exceeded what they were authorized to do or they're interpreting the language improperly and you have to stop. And then we have to navigate the courts of appeal and win in the courts of appeal. And one of the things that they've started doing, we see this a lot in energy policy, is we file a lawsuit in one place and they go to the DC circuit and file a new lawsuit. So then they'll create different decisions. And one might allow them to keep doing what they're doing in a lot of places. And the other one might stop it in some places. And the only way we ever get that resolved is if the United States Supreme Court takes the case, which is very hard. Right. So it's not easy. I mean, I think Congress at the end of the day is our best hope. A new presidency will help. A conservative presidency would help um, because we're going to roll some of those policies back. But but the pendulum will keep swinging back and forth until Congress can exercise power or the Supreme Court issues a good show, a good opinion that pulls back on that administrative deference. And that would be a that would create a sea change of difference, I think, in the courts. Um. Based on Melissa's question, I wanted to touch uh, upon the children's health defense case that you guys have just, I guess, last week filed an amicus brief on, Um, because this was sort of a non-governmental, governmental type thing, right? Like there's, I can't remember the name of the TNI or something like that was the name of this, the acronym of this, this um, consortium of, it was like the Washington Post and the BBC and a few other of these these uh, you know legacy media organizations and some social media platforms that got together to police uh, you know unwanted speech and right. of course children's health defense people were all about the stuff that we were talking about earlier like hey you really don't need to vaccinate these kids it does them more harm than good and they got throttled and obviously they filed a lawsuit so um, they uh, just talk a little bit about they become a they become a propaganda they're just a prop- propaganda machine. Right. So talk about, you know, the the, the case and, and more specifically, like the amicus brief um, uh, in that in that regard, like here's a non-governmental governmental thing that's going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it just it, it, it ties the the entire system back into turning the press, whether it is, you know, if it's the Washington Post and the New York Times, they actually have editors they don't have an exemption under Section 230. Um, So they're not treated the same way legally. These platforms get have a have an immunity because from basically being sued over their speech um, because they allegedly don't edit our speech. So they are different. And I think that but this network that was created was created so that they could police people's speech if they felt like it was um, harmful speech and their term, their interpretation of harmful speech would be like misgendering somebody or um, speech that they found to be hateful. And, you know, policing speech that you think is mean is different from saying I'm going, you know, that's very, very different. And, and when the, the big, big press agencies like the Washington Post and the New York Times, you know, when those entities have now taken it upon themselves, instead of to promoting free speech, to blocking free speech, they have really lost their way. And then the platforms themselves threaten their own immunity when they start editing our speech based on the whims of a federal government all the way up to the White House because it's speech that they don't like or that might hurt that or their political operation like Hunter Biden's laptop. It's just a day. I mean, that's what the gist of our amicus brief is about, that this is exceedingly dangerous threat to the First Amendment. 
So the yeah. fun thing was that that brief in that case is actually in front of Terry Doty, who's the judge in the Western District of Louisiana. It's the same guy that has the Missouri v. Biden case. Um, so <laughs> I guess I guess Doty is basically turning into the 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 uh, the First Amendment judge, right? Like he's turning into the expert in the entire judicial system on this subject because he keeps getting bombed with these cases. Well, he he's I mean, you know, in our case, he wrote in the opinion that this was kind of a the, that the Orwellian nature of what the government had created was very, very shocking. And so I think he has become a champion of free speech. Um, he has been bold and brave enough to issue an injunction that would tell them to stop doing what they're doing and careful enough to write it in a way that carefully navigates Supreme Court precedent. And so that's why you see more plaintiffs who are affected by the same government enterprise coming to him saying, our case is related, join us with Louisiana and Missouri. Right. What do you think of the Fifth Circuit? I mean, I, having seen some of the oral argument at the Fifth Circuit over the Missouri v. Biden case, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you want to handicap what they're doing, but it it definitely seemed like um, the judges in the three-judge panel that you guys argued in front of were pretty sympathetic toward the state's argument and not so sympathetic toward the feds. Yeah, I mean, we had a very good panel. I, I think that it, it is going to come down to whether they believe Judge Doty uh, navigated the limits on federal judicial authority adequately by carving a careful enough opinion up uh, or out uh, so that it can withstand the scrutiny of the Fifth Circuit. I, I believe that he did. I, I think that, you know, he was very careful in how he wrote the opinion and he backed it up with a lot of evidence from the record, which is is a good thing when you get to the court of appeal because the courts of appeal are not supposed to second guess the fact finding of the district court judge. And there was a ton of fact finding, right? I mean, you, you guys had a ton of depositions and what you uncovered was really pretty shocking. Well, it he had 80 pages of fact or 80, yeah, I think 80 pages of fact finding in the opinion itself based on 20,000 pages of preliminary discovery. And we were just getting started. So that's not even all of it. I mean, there could be and and likely is a lot more that needs to be produced. Um, it we were just able to get that information early in the case. Melissa, you got anything? Well, I was just thinking, I don't think the American people really grasp the situation that they're in. And it it disturbs me because. What we're talking about here is so fundamental. And you couple this kind of systemic government um, censorship of people, both and through tech. And so people are ignorant. They, uh, Peter Schweitzer has written about um, Google and, and uh, um, search and how it's manipulated. So if you have tech companies who are, purposefully manipulating what you see, what access to information you have. And then you have other tech companies um, censoring, you know, at the government's behest, what can be said about the misinformation that people are getting because they're not getting the full information. And, you know, Facebook's shutting down forums of people in medical groups who are sharing the problems that they have, say, you know, they, there's a group full of people who have children with myocarditis and Facebook shuts that down. So you have no access to talk to other people who are enduring the same type of thing that you have. Basically, you're in this kind of modern dystopia where the average citizen is a tiny little bot in the government's plan. When we went through COVID and China was doing what they did and surveilling every single one of their uh, citizens, and you had Democrats especially, and even some Republicans speaking fondly about the ability of, of their government to, right. to control the populace, in this situation, it's absolutely alarming. And the problem that I have 
at the state level, we have people like you, Liz, and here in Texas, we have, you know, Ken Pax and others who are in, in different states, you know, going after the federal government. But nationally, I've been really, and federally, I've been really upset with our elected Republicans for simply not uh, seeming to grasp it or kind of enjoying their ability to bully the different tech companies themselves. It's not that they have a problem with um, the bullying per se or the, you know, hemming in of free speech. It's that they are not the ones doing it. Right. And, and so like, this is um, the, and if you look at millennial attitudes in particular toward free speech, yeah. And toward, you know, what can and can't be said, we're really talking about America that didn't exist 20 years ago with attitudes and ideas that didn't, that are very European, but not American at all. And I don't know how, what you feel about that. Like what can be done to push this back? Um, I mean, the lawsuits are great, but the public, the, you know, the public opinion, I don't know, is I'm not even sure that people understand what they're facing. Look, I, I, I agree with everything you said about, you know, people don't understand the implications, I think, of what they're facing. Um, you know, we saw a lot of that in COVID and there was all this censoring or bullying. I mean, overt, outright attacks and um, ostracizing of people. And you had the people who agreed with it saying, yep, that's good. We need to do that to protect the, protect the people. And the, the, the swiftness with which people threw out First Amendment protections is always shocking. It, it happens anytime there's something that is scary. Uh, and I, I think it happened after 9-11, too. And there were concerns that were raised with the Patriot Act at the time about it going too far and interfering with people's First Amendment rights and um, Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights. But at the time, people were scared. It was a shocking, shocking event. And, you know, so there's always kind of a reaction. And and I think it takes time for things to settle back out again. They may never, you know, if you convince a the whole a whole generation of people, our younger generation, that the the Bill of Rights is dangerous, that mm -hmm. our Second Amendment rights are dangerous, that our First Amendment rights are dangerous, and that they're bad, they will throw them out in a heartbeat. And I, I think that so I do think that education is really important. History is important and going back and and looking at fascist, fascism, communism, governments that are currently and, and more, I think, more currently have moved in that direction, like Venezuela, what's happened to their economies? You know, I mean, it has been extremely destructive. Just look at some of the riots that have occurred in France. I mean, if you look at and. If you look at their economy alone and their tax structure, it's shocking how much money that people pay to the government and then how much control the government is exercising. And it's not helping the people. So there are massive riots over energy policy in France. And I think you will eventually see the same thing here. But it does go back, I think, to educating our youth about why these principles matter and what they can face if in and showing them current events, not just the past. Uh, I know somebody was telling me that Kamala Harris in almost every one of her speech says this phrase that we should approach the future without being burdened by the past. Mm -hmm. That's a terrifying thing. I mean, I think history is incredibly important that for us to be able to look at prior events and what happened and look at the mistakes that we made um, or just how things played out so that we know because history is likely to repeat itself. And we have 
thousands of years of history to look at to see that. So, you know, the idea that we can approach the future without being burdened by the past is ridiculous and it's terrifying and scary. We should look at the past and and we should approach the future with a healthy respect for why we have the democracy that we have and the freedoms that we preserved. Well, what scares me about all of this is it's something I keep coming back to, you know, things that I write and when we talk about uh, stuff on this podcast all the time is you have a government and a political movement, party, whatever, on the left that is bound and determined to make an America full of people who can't self-govern. Right. right. Whether it's whether it's, um, you know, the, the treatment of criminals, um, you know, and, and defunding the police and, and sort of breaking down law and order in the cities that they run, whether it's the stuff we've been talking about where you you it's not you, teaching them to read. I mean, let's right. give them, I mean, let's give them a yeah. participation trophy instead of teaching kids how to read. I mean, that that hobbles them, too. Right. I mean, I just well, across it's an across the board assault on merit that you see. Um, and right. you know, total lack of civics, total lack of um, you know, the kinds of things that Ramaswamy talks about, for example, where you know, is there an American identity? And the left does everything they can to create as many American identities as possible with all these different subcultures and everything else. And so we're balkanized. We don't know who we are as a people. Uh, we don't, you know, like you said, we don't understand, accept uh, history for what it is. Um, and yet all of these things kind of combined to a population that's on their phones with stuff all day, pays no attention to, um, you know, the big picture of what's going on and is just kind of very easily led, um, you know, and, and we're always governing in a crisis. Right. And in a crisis, the normal rules don't apply. Well, they don't like the normal rules, so they like the crisis. And whether it's a covid thing or whether it's, you know, Ukraine and Russia or it's all these different, you know, there's always a new thing that that we've all got to um, change our lives to accommodate. And yet, you know, we become less and less of the people that our parents and grandparents were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do. I. I I'm hopeful that our youth are kind of fundamentally libertarian, if, if, if for lack of a better word, they don't like being told what to do. So, you know, the more they're told what to do, the more they kind of resist the machine. Um, right. I, and they become skeptical. I mean, we have the press and the, the, the kind of stuff that you see on social media that they are constantly bombarded with does make them a more skeptical bunch, um, I think, generally speaking, but it also has significant impact on their mental health. You know, I mean, that's, we we saw, um, we've seen the statistics of what, what TikTok and some of these other platforms have done. And so that kind of puts you between a rock and a hard place, right? Because we don't, we don't want them to be able to drive a mental health crisis, um, but at the same time, we want to preserve free speech. Right. We don't well, want then, them pushing porn on minors. But at the same time, we need to protect free speech and adults have access to that kind of content. So it it is a I mean, it's difficult to navigate in the tech world when it's driven by algorithms, to your point, Melissa. Um, I wanted to, to hit you about one uh a case that also popped up last week, which was, and I guess it's not a new case, but it got moved into a federal court last week. So the Livingston Parish School Board, which is, uh, that's the, the suburban area just to the east of Baton Rouge, um, filed a lawsuit against TikTok and Instagram saying that their you know content, their platforms had uh, have created a mental health crisis for school kids in the school district. Um, you know, and it, we were kind of joking about this, that this is the Republican Party weaponizing trial lawyers, finally, right? <laughs> to go after China and, and Mark Zuckerberg yeah. um, based on this stuff. And it's a lot better on your insurance rates than car wrecks are. Um, 
But I, but there's something maybe there, right? Like if these platforms yeah. are making it harder and harder to educate kids and you're a school district or you're, you know, whatever you are, I mean, is that a case that can get somewhere? It, I mean, yeah. like, so you- I like you it. Think- it's a good lawsuit. I like it. Um, I've looked at filing one um, myself. So I, I do think it is good and I think it's going to pick up a lot of steam. Um, this is not a new suit. I mean, it may be new to us, but it's not new around the country. Uh, it is not easy to sue China. Um, but I will say that TikTok, which operates through companies that have been established here in the United States, um, but are still under TikTok, at, at the, at they all kind of trace back, right? Um, there are more restrictions on minors' access to content under through TikTok in China than there are in the United States. Um, you know, we don't let kids go into the grocery store and buy pornography. We don't let them go into the grocery store and buy alcohol, drug, or 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 drugs or cigarettes even. Um, but they can. They are being not just. They can't just access it. They're actually having content driven to them through these algorithms, um, w- which is shocking. I've seen some of it. Uh, I think that the statistics are dramatic. How they can turn the needle on a child's mental health. I know. I uh, personally know people um, whose children have committed suicide. I, I think that this is a very um, dangerous thing. And I believe the lawsuit is a good one. Interesting. It's interesting because years ago when um, the interwebs was, was kind of starting, there was a discussion at one time about having any porn or kind of adult related content be, um, you know, make an online red district, blue district, whatever you want to call it, where all the domains would be uh, .xxx. And of course, the porn industry and affiliated industries had a complete fit. But the advantage to that would be that the, um, you know, there could be a whole section of the internet that could be turned off for children that, you know, right. they wouldn't have access to. And instead, we have the 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 equivalent is is that we have, you know, in the suburbs. On TikTok, you have, um, you know, prostitutes, you know, standing at, you know, in your gated community. And um, it's it's a real problem. And it seems to be a problem that uh, nobody really wants to address or or deal with. But it it's causing a generational problem. just problems on top of problems for for the children who are having to deal with this. And when you look at the statistics of how old kids are who have access to this kind of uh, content and how it's affecting classrooms, I I don't know if this is happening in Louisiana, but I know some- You know, there's a law, we're defending it right now. It's an age verification law. Uh, with relative to pornography on the internet and it required uh it requires the 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 vendor um the person who operates the site to verify the age of the person who's accessing the content Mm -hmm. and there's an old supreme court opinion that enjoined a similar law some years ago and it was based on the facts at the time saying that there aren't Kids can't really, they don't have easy access to this material. Parents can control it. Mm-hmm. And so it it can't, this law doesn't meet strict scrutiny. Well, times have dramatically changed. Right. And so now there are all kinds of ways that 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 the not just not that they can just not just that they can access it, but that it is actually driven to them. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think that the age verification law should be able to meet strict scrutiny at this point in time, but we are going to have to take that all the way to the United States Supreme Court, I think, and have the Supreme, now the Fifth Circuit might agree with us that the facts are different, but I believe that our law will likely be enjoined. I believe, and Texas is just was, 
Um, another law, I think Arkansas or somewhere else, Utah, their law was enjoined. So these laws are going to go up to the United States Supreme Court, and we're going to have to press the boundaries of that opinion and say, look, the facts have changed. This is different from back then. And now the, we do have a, they already said we had a compelling interest to protect kids from this material. What's changed is the technology is now driving the content to them. And there are all kinds of ways to get around it. And it's used everywhere. They give the kids laptops in school. You go to the public library and you, they're all over the public library. I mean, you can't, it's on your phone. It's very, very different from even 10 years ago. Yeah. Okay. In the, in the little time we've got left, Liz, I want to ask you about the election because, uh, like I said, you're the solicitor general. You're running for the uh, the job of attorney general in Louisiana. The current attorney general, Jeff Landry, is the favorite to be governor. So I guess the AG's office is going to, like everybody takes a, a, a bump up if things go uh, the way they uh, could possibly go um, this fall. Uh, just Talk to us about the race and and how you th see things going and uh, what's the response been from the folks? The response has been great. Um, you know, the race is just going um, well, very, very well. I've, I've seen a lot of momentum pick up just um, in the last few weeks where people are starting to pay more attention and be more engaged and ask questions about some of the races, the down ballot races, you know, which is the races below governor. Um, and specifically, I think they do care about the attorney general's race because they've seen us be more active around the country and they've seen how important attorney generals have become in terms of protecting people's basic freedoms and rights. Uh, and, and so I believe that is an incredibly important role. I plan to prioritize addressing crime and addressing public protection. Um, those are kind of flip sides of the same coin. I mean, if it's not criminal, it still may be an issue with relative to public protection. And so I want to ramp up um, some of the programs in our office on both of those counts. Very good. Melissa, you got anything else? No, I just really appreciate the perspective, Liz, that you're bringing and because it's actually concrete. And for those who are watching this podcast to know that at the state level, there are courageous politicians doing the right thing and trying to push back on the behemoth that is our federal government. And, and these elections matter. We saw in Wisconsin uh, the Republican base kind of being lackadaisical. And, and so Democrats, you know, are um running things and that means the rule of law is out that means that protections on free speech and and the regulatory state will you know be strangling everybody once again and it's a terrible thing and it didn't used to it didn't used to feel like it mattered so much but it certainly matters now so hopefully the people of Louisiana will um you know pay attention to what is the elections and um, vote. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, for I mean, you know, thank you. I think that, you know, I think we've taken for granted for many years that people who are running for office respected the rule of law. And, mm -hmm. and we, you can't take that for granted anymore. I mean, you see people running who are actually opposed to the institutions, do not believe in the institutions that are the foundations of our democracy and our republic. And I believe in the constitution. I believe in our freedoms. Um, I believe in, in you know, the, the just the, sort of the fundamental foundations that drove the creation of those freedoms, um, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, protecting our ability to do that with the least amount of interference from government possible. Um, the free exercise of our faith and our religion and speech. I mean, these are all very, very foundational beliefs that I think are critical for any attorney general. Um, and if I believe if you have the right foundations uh, and experience, then you can bring, you know, you may not know exactly what the job entails. Most people running for attorney general don't, but I've been there for eight years. I think that I do. 
Um, but I understand that that people come from different backgrounds to the job. I look for people that have the right basis and the right foundations um, to make the right decisions. Right. Thanks for being with us, Liz. I sure appreciate it. Best of luck this fall. Thank you. I appreciate being with y'all.